up on the Tennessee-North Carolina border. There's a road there, 11-mile stretch of road. I think it's Highway 129 or 219, something like that. But there's an 11-mile stretch of road right there on the border between North and South Carolina, or North Carolina and Tennessee called the Dragon's Tail. This 11-mile stretch of road has 318 turns in 11 miles. I mean, if you get motion sickness, this is not the road you want to be on. But if you're a motorcycle enthusiast or a sports car enthusiast, this is like the ideal road because in that 11-mile stretch, there's, there's not any other roads that cut through. It's just, just 11 miles of 318 turns. Now, there is, I've ridden on that road on my motorcycle, and it is fantastic. Uh, in fact, I enjoyed it so much, I turned around and did it again. But, but at the end of that road, there's this big tree called, I think it's called the Tree of Shame. For those who don't make it, the 308, or 318 turns, for those who don't make it, those who crash, you can pick up a piece of your motorcycle or a piece of your car and take it to the Tree of Shame and hang it on the Tree of Shame. And it is covered with car parts and motorcycle parts. Uh, here's, let me show you a picture of what I'm talking about with the roads. Uh, here's an example. Uh, it's roads turn to the left or to the right sharply. Sometimes you're going a little fast and you don't recognize that there's a turn there. And when you don't recognize the turn is coming, guess what happens? You can see from the skid marks, you just go straight. And you go off the road. You know, when I look at that picture, I'm thinking, if you could predict everything that's ahead, you can prepare for it. But it's those turns that you don't notice that cause you to crash. Those turns that you don't anticipate that, ta- that cause you to crash. And life is like that too. As much as you want to plan your life, as much as you want to be in control of your life, life has a way of surprising us. Life has a way of surprising us with unexpected things, unexpected turns that are sometimes beyond our control. And sometimes... The unexpected things, the unexpected turns are good things. Some, they're not always bad. Sometimes they're blessings. But many times, those unexpected turns break us. Last Sunday, we started a new series through the book of Ruth called Unexpected Turns. It's a short story in the book of Ruth, just four little chapters. And I told you last week that it's a, it's a love story. It's a God story. And it may be your story. I have a feeling several of you, maybe lots of you, are going to be able to relate to the story of Ruth today. Would you open God's Word to Ruth chapter 1? Ruth chapter 1. Now, rather than digging in and studying this brief book, we're simply going to walk chapter by chapter through the incredible story that is being told in this book. And I'll tell you, you know, I was thinking about it this week as, as I was trying to decide how, how do you present this material? How do you take what's there and, and, and present it to a congregation? And as I was thinking about that, I recognized that in 38 years of preaching, as, if memory serves me correctly, in 38 years of preaching, no one has ever told me my favorite outline that you ever preached was so-and-so. Nobody's ever said, you know, I still remember that outline you used eight years ago. But many times people have told me, my favorite story that you ever told was, and they tell me. In fact, somebody did that recently. We were at a restaurant. Somebody said, you know what, my favorite story that you told, and they started talking about the Walmart story. 
And for some of you, your favorite story is the cat story. Or for some of you, my, your favorite story is the boat story. How many remember the boat story? Yeah, see, see that, was, that had to be eight, eight, nine years ago. And you still, in fact, if I brought a microphone to you, some of you could pretty much in detail tell us the boat story. But if I would say, what, what was my outline last week? You probably couldn't remember any of it. There's something about stories that grab us. There's something about stories that pull us in. The book of Ruth is like that. The book of Ruth is a story that once you, once you get into the story at the end, it might be one of those stories that you never forget. It might be one of those stories that you always remember because it's not just a love story and it's not just a God story, but because it's really your story. So, listen. Look at the book of Ruth today in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm just going to read the first two verses since that's pretty much what we dealt with last week. We'll just read that a little bit. Uh, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went up to Moab and lived there. Now, I'm not going to rehearse everything we talked about last week, and you can watch that online. I encourage you to do so. But Elimelech was faced with a very hard decision. Do you stay in the promised land and trust that God will somehow provide for you during this time of famine? Or do you move your family to the pagan land of Moab so that your family can survive? That's a big decision. That's a hard decision to make. And, and many scholars believe that Elimelech did the wrong thing, that he made the wrong decision. Many scholars believe that Elimelech uh, abandoned God's land. He abandoned God's promise. He abandoned God's will. And he and his family suffered the consequences of that uh, in the years following in Moab. I'm not going to get into that, but last week I did ask you a question. I said, if you were Elimelech, what would you do? And we voted on it. Would you stay or would you leave? That is, would you stay there in the promised land, trusting God to somehow provide in this time of famine, or would you take your family to Moab where you know that there was food and your family could be provided for? And we voted on it. I asked you, would you stay or would you leave? And it shocked me that about 85% of you said we would leave. We would go to Moab. And about 15% said we would stay. We would stay in the land of promise and trust in God to provide. <clears throat> and then I told you that if you came back, I would tell you, if you came back today, I would tell you which group is right. And so I'm glad you're back. So here's the answer. The passage doesn't tell us which group is right. The passage basically says that's not the point of the story. The narrator is not so concerned with the question of whether the move was a good move or a bad move. Instead, the narrator of the story focuses on the unfortunate and the tragic situation that Naomi wrestles with. In fact, if you read the text after verse 3, Elimelech's not even mentioned in the book. So the, the, the writer of this book, this anonymous author, is saying, look, look, wait, 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 don't get tied up in whether he should or shouldn't have gone down to Moab. That's not the point of the story point of the story is what Naomi suffered and what God did through that time. So, with that as a background, let's begin now, beginning in verse 3. 
Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Now, those are just a few words, but think about the pain those words represent. Living in a foreign land, living away from family, Naomi's husband died. Some of you know that pain, don't you? You know that kind of pain. Your husband died, or your wife died. And that's a painful thing. To go through. In fact, just, just this morning, just this morning, I, I took some funeral notes out of my notebook here and I, I placed it in my file folder of uh, funerals that I have done at Mount Airy and I noticed that the folder was about that thick. Those are just funerals. I started to bring the folder to show you. Those are just funerals that I've done at Mount Airy. I think I've done three funerals in the last four weeks where people had to say goodbye to loved ones. They had to say goodbye to a mother this week, had to say goodbye to a wife the previous week, and another one had to say goodbye to a husband. Some of you know that pain, and this is a very real story. And this is what happened for Naomi. And look what it says in verse 3. Again, <clears throat> now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And look, notice the wording here. She was left with her two sons. Notice that phrase. She was left. She didn't have her didn't have her husband, but she did have still two sons. One was called Malon, and the other it was called Kilion. Now, we don't know exactly what happened here, but let me at least give you a hint. Malon's name in Hebrew means sick or weak. Kilion means puny. Rough translation. Puny. So, keep that in mind as we read the next verse, two verses they, that is her two sons, married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about two or about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. Malon, the one who was called sick, Kilion, the one who was called puny, they also died. We're not told of what, but they both died. And Naomi, here's the phrase again, and Naomi was left without her two sons, and her husband. Naomi had to do the unthinkable. She had to bury two sons. And the Bible says that she was left without those two sons and a husband. In other words, her arms were empty and her home was empty. And in addition to her overwhelming grief, Naomi's bleak future was on the horizon because now without a man in her home in that culture, without a man in her home, without a man to take care of her, her future was, was going to be reduced to begging and poverty. In that culture, the women didn't have the opportunity to go get a job. Without a man there to take care of her, her future was a bleak one because all she could do was beg. All she had to look forward to was poverty. And so we pick up the story in verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. <clears throat> Naomi hears that the famine is over. Somehow she gets word down in Moab that the famine up in Bethlehem, the house of bread, now has bread. The famine is over. And so she decides to return home. That's where food is, and that's where her extended family is. It makes sense to go home. 
And it says in verse 7, she left the place where she had been living. Now, understand what she was also leaving. She left three graves behind. She left the graves of her, of her husband, and she left the graves of her two sons. And when she leaves Moab, she's not just leaving a pagan nation. When she leaves Moab, she's leaving three graves behind. She and her two daughters-in-law get on the road. This is not the time of, of interstate highways. There was just a road, one road, that went from Judah to Moab. Uh, so she got on the road that went from Judah to Moab, or Moab to Judah. She got on the road, and as, she, as they got on that road, started walking towards Bethlehem. Somewhere along that way, probably not too far down the road, somewhere along that way, it begins to occur to her, I'm going home, but these girls here with me are leaving home. I'm heading back to Bethlehem. I'm going home, but they're leaving Moab. They're leaving home. And she decides, this is not right. I don't need to take them away from their home. I don't need to take them away from their extended family. They need to stay here in Moab. And so she tries to convince them of that. Look what it says in verse 7. <clears throat> With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown, your deed, shown to your dead and to me. I, the, the scripture doesn't say, but... I really believe perhaps she said that with tears in her eyes. Because she didn't refer to their husbands, she referred to your dead. As they walked on the road back to Judah, I believe Naomi was overwhelmed with grief. And she says in the next verse, May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. If that was me, when I said those words, I would have choked up. May God give you another husband. It'd be hard to keep the tears back, wouldn't it? Because you'd think about the ones that you left in Moab. May God give you another husband. And another reason that I believe she was weeping, because it says in the very next sentence, then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They stood there on the road, heading back to Judah, and they're standing there, three women weeping out loud. Not just silent tears, weeping out loud. We began to see the depth of Naomi's misery. As we read beginning of verse 10. Here's what the ladies, the, the daughters-in-law said to her. We will go back with you to your people. They're saying this with tears in their eyes. All three of them, tears in their eyes. We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons that could become your husbands? Now, the, what she's talking about here is a custom in that day called Leverite marriage. Uh, the, the custom of the day was when an Israelite husband died, his brother or near relative would marry the widow to continue the brother's name. So she says, I've got nobody left for you to marry. 
I don't have anybody that can carry on the family name. I don't have any other sons. Why would you go back with me? And then we really begin to see the depth of her pain and the depth of her, her anger and her misery when she says, verse 12, Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to, to, to sons, listen to this, listen, church, verse 13, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my, my daughters, listen to this, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone against me. She was in essence saying this to those daughters-in-law, listen, go back home, at least you've got options. I don't have any options. I'm too old to have another husband. I'm too old to have any more children. Don't come with me because God's hand is against me. Your life might end up as bitter as mine. You need to go home or you might end up as bad as I am. Tears flooding down her cheeks. I think this is a good point for us to kind of take a break. I don't mean literally, physically. I don't get up and leave. But it's kind of a heavy subject, isn't it? We need to lighten the mood a little bit, right? Because it's just kind of a heavy subject. So let me make a point that might help us a little bit. Are you familiar with emojis? Yeah. If you were to choose the emoji face for Naomi right now, what would it be? Yeah. Not long ago, she's going to kill me for doing this. Not long ago, uh, I was riding with my wife, and I looked over. She was texting somebody as I was driving. I looked over, she had her phone in her hand, and she's doing. I said, what are you doing? And she went. She said, I'm trying to decide what emotion I'm feeling so I can find the emoji to match it. And then, the best part was when she looked at me, tilted her head and said, do you ever do that? (laughs) No, I've I've, I've never had that thought at all in my mind. (laughs) And I need some place to go eat lunch today. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be doing this (laughs) this afternoon. (laughs) If you're to give an emoji to Naomi right now, I mean, it would be the emoji with just either the the tears coming down or Naomi may say this, if you're going to choose an emoji for me, give me a bitter face. I want a bitter face. Because that's the emotion I'm feeling right now. Look at the text. It's kind of uncomfortable. Again, verse 13, No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone against me. And at this, they wept again. These ladies are crying constantly, aren't they? They're so overcome with grief, so overcome with the emotions and the angst and the, and the misery of it all. They, and notice that they were all weeping, not just Naomi. They were all weeping because they had all lost somebody. 
Naomi had lost her husband and two sons, and the other two young ladies had lost husbands. They had, they had all lost someone, and their grief was real, and it was shared. Verse 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back. I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. Let's go to verse 14. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah decides to go back home. And so now Naomi's trying to convince Ruth to do likewise in verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And your people will be my people. And your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, bid ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Well, you usually hear that phrase at a wedding, right? It comes out of the book of Ruth. It comes out of time of misery. It's not a very happy time. And it's an incredible act of loyalty. It is an incredible act of commitment where Ruth is absolutely committed and loyal to Naomi and willing to turn her back on her country. Turn her back on her culture. Turn her back on her family. And to go to the land of Judah and not only go there to new people, to a new culture, to a new language, and not only live there, but say, listen, I never plan to come back home. In fact, when I die, they will bury me in Judah. I don't ever plan to come back to Moab. Now, the question has to be, why would Ruth be so loyal what would cause Ruth to say, I, I'm going to take that step, and I'm going to, what in the world would cause her to do that? Well, we don't know for sure. I've got three suggestions. It was just speculation, and that's all it is. But three things that kind of make sense to me. Perhaps she found in Naomi a mother she never had at home. Perhaps there was a, a connection there. Perhaps she loved Naomi so much and she sensed that relationship with Naomi. It was, maybe there was just that relationship with Naomi that she never had with her mom back home. And so maybe that's the reason she's willing to turn her back on everything that was in her past to say, I'm going to go with you. I don't know. Maybe that's a good reason. Maybe she felt like she owed it to her husband. Maybe she felt like this is the way to honor him. I know he would want me to take care of his mama. I know he was worried about his mama. And so I'm going to go with Ruth, and I'm going to be with her because I told my husband, I promised my husband I would take care of his mama. It's a good answer. Or maybe, I don't know, it's all speculation. Maybe when she looked into the eyes, the sad eyes of Naomi, maybe Ruth recognized how badly she needed her. We don't know. What we do know is Ruth's commitment and loyalty was astounding. And she left her family and she left her land never to return. Now, we pick up the story in verse 19, and this is where it really begins to get interesting. <clears throat> so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. It was about 50 to 60 miles from Moab to Bethlehem. It's probably a five to seven day journey if you're walking there. And so they had a long way to go and a long time to talk. As they got closer to home, I'm sure that they began to see familiar landmarks. Things that reminded them of some warm memories. 
As they got closer to home, probably Naomi could say to Ruth, you know, there was a time when we went over there to that spring. And I remember a time when, when your son or when your husband, when he was a boy, was hanging from that tree. And I, I remember, and as she shares these memories, tears probably start flowing again. Because the closer she gets to Bethlehem, the further she gets from, no, from, from Moab. And the closer she gets to Bethlehem, the more she remembers the last time I was here, my husband was here, and my two sons were here. The closer she gets to Bethlehem, the more she thinks about the three graves she left in Moab. And here's what we read in the text. When they arrived, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they arrived in Bethlehem, The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? And the reason that I told you and tried to make a a, kind of a big deal out of the fact that the closer she got to Bethlehem, the more she perhaps became overwhelmed with the emotion of it all. The more she began to think about the grave she left in Moab. The reason you need to understand that context is because once she walked into the city limits of Bethlehem, People began to recognize her. Word began to spread that Naomi was back. And when the ladies saw Naomi, they looked at one another and said, Can this be Naomi? Life had been hard for her the last 10 years. The toll, the toll it had taken on her was evident in Naomi's countenance and her appearance. Can this be that really Naomi I mean we change in 10 years time right I mean 10 years ago I had hair we change we all change over a period of 10 years but there was something else about that I don't think it was just that physically she looked different I think it was something about her countenance something about the way she walked into town And you get that sense when you read the very next verse, verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. Why not? Isn't that your name? Everybody look here for a second. I want to tell you what Naomi means. Naomi, Hebrew name Naomi means pleasant. Pleasant. She was saying, do not call me pleasant. Naomi, before, was that sweet lady. She always had a smile. She was that sweet lady that would always greet you. She was that, that, that lady just had such a sweet spirit about her. She was that lady that was so kind. She was just little Miss Sunshine, you know. There was just something about Naomi. She was a sweet lady. She lived up to her name. And this time, when that's the reason when she walked into Bethlehem, people looked at her and said, can this be Naomi? And when she overheard them, she said, wait a minute. First of all, stop calling me Naomi. Nothing pleasant about my life. Nothing pleasant about what I've been through the last 10 years. Do not call me Naomi. And then she says, call me Mara. And what Mara means? Bitter. Call me bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. You know, I, I was thinking about it. Probably the most bitter people I've ever met are the ones who are bitter at God. It's one thing to be bitter at somebody else. 
It's quite another thing when you're bitter at God. Naomi expresses the bitterness in her soul. And guess what? She clearly blames God for what she's going through. Look at the text and you'll see what I'm talking about. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because, here's the reason you call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I'm sure tears in her eyes choked up in her voice. I went away full. I went away with a husband and two sons, and we had everything that we needed. I went away full. I'm coming back empty. My arms are empty. My life is empty. My soul is empty. I went away full. I'm coming back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I don't know if you're one of those women sitting in front of her as she kind of unloads, you're probably starting to look down. It's like, boy, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. By the way, did you notice the word that she uses to describe God? She uses the word almighty. She does that a couple of places, two or three places, where she uses the word, the almighty has done this. The almighty has done this. It's interesting that she uses that word. It's the Hebrew name El Shaddai. El Shaddai means the Lord God Almighty. It describes the God who can do anything. That He has all power. That's what El Shaddai means. He's the God that is almighty. He's the God that has all power. He's the God who can do anything. And that's the reason she's, she's angry. That's the reason she's bitter. Because the God who can do anything did Nothing to help me. The Almighty did this. The God who could do anything did nothing to help me. Now, my guess is some of you know that kind of bitterness. Maybe you're not bitter at God. Maybe you are. I don't know. But my guess is some of you know that pain. You know that hurt. You know that emptiness. You know what empty arms feel like. You know what an empty house feels like. You know what an empty life feels like. You know what an empty soul feels like. You've had to bury somebody that you loved. You had to bury somebody it was like a part of you died too. Maybe you're bitter, maybe you're not. But you've likely shed tears of grief. You likely can identify with the, ang- with the, uh, the anxiety that Naomi is feeling and the misery that she's going through. And so as I close today, I've just got two lessons I want to give you. It's like, what do we do with this text? Do we go home and say, man, I wish I'd never gone today. I tell you, that was... That was a downer. Or is there something we can learn from it? Of course, I think there is something we can learn from it. And there's two things I want to share with you. Number one, 
you need to learn, first of all, that God is at work even in the worst of times. You see, if you begin in chapter 1, verse 1, we find out that this story starts in the days when the judges ruled. And I told you last week that in the days when the judges ruled, it was the dark days in Israel's history. It was the darkest days in Israel's history. It was the worst time imaginable in Israel's history as far as the relationship with God. But not only was it the dark days and the worst days for the nation, it was the darkest days and the worst days for Naomi. She had lost her husband and she had lost two sons. It was the darkest and the worst days in her life and in her country. And in, in spite of all of that, and in the middle of all of that, Almighty God was at work. Who could imagine that God was quietly moving in the tragedies of life to prepare the way for the greatest king of Israel, David, and for ultimately the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's what we find at the end of the book. When we fast forward to the end of the book, we find that God was indeed doing something. We find at the end of the book that God was preparing a way for the greatest king in Israel's history. When we get to the end of the, of the book, we find out that though Naomi said, I've got nothing, not, God's done nothing for me. God had done an awful lot for Naomi. She just had no idea. And I know that if you're going through a hard time, I know that if you're experiencing difficulty, I know if you've felt this pain and this grief, especially if you've felt it recently, I understand you may be pushing back a little bit and you may be saying to me, Preacher, you have no idea. And I would say to you, you are exactly right. I don't. But I would tell you this, I have shed tears for you this week. Because as I've read this story countless times this week, I kept seeing the faces of people that's in that pile. Kept seeing your faces. Realizing I'm going to be talking to somebody who's lost a husband. I'm going to be talking to somebody who has buried a wife. I'm going to be talking to somebody who has buried their son, or their daughter, or their mom, or their dad. This is not just a story. This is your story. It's your story. It's your pain. And I want to honor that. I want to recognize that. But there's a second lesson we've got to learn to kind of put everything together here. This second lesson is, is so important. And here it is, when our lives are empty, when our lives are empty, we often can't see what God is doing. Point number one, God's at work in the worst of times. Point number two, but when our lives are empty, we can't see it. You know why we can't see it? And this, this is not critical, but you know why we can't see it? Because we're so focused on our emptiness. We're so focused on our pain. We're so focused on what has happened to us. And I understand that. Again, it's not critical. It's just an observation. It's just kind of natural that we get focused on, on our problem and our pain and our loss and, and all of that. And that's what Naomi did. And she, she said, she said, I went away full and God brought me back empty. And as I read that story, I wanted to say to her, no, he didn't. 
I wanted to talk to the Bible and say, no, he didn't. I wanted to say to her, Naomi, don't, don't you see what God has done and what God is doing? But, but then I realized, when I read chapter 1, she's still living it, isn't she? I had the perspective of all four chapters. She didn't have that perspective. But let me remind you what God has already done for her. Let me remind you. Listen carefully. First of all, God took away the famine so that she could come home. God removed the famine. God watched over them as these two women traveled from Moab back to to Bethlehem. A long journey, 50, 60 miles by themselves. God protected them as they traveled. And the biggest blessing of all, Ruth was by her side. She had this daughter-in-law that had this incredible loyalty to her. Ruth is with her by her side. She's back in Bethlehem. She's back where she grew up. She's back with her family, or extended family. She's back with her friends. And yet all she can say is, the Lord has brought me back empty. No. God does an awful lot that we don't even notice because our pain is so real. Our lives are so empty. All we can see is how much we're hurting. And we don't take the time to notice what the Lord has done and is doing around us. It reminds me of that verse in Jeremiah. I think it's in Jeremiah 29, isn't it? Where God says, I know the plans I have for you. Not plans to hurt you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And, and when he said that, it was not good times. When he said that, it was not, it was not a, a, a perfect time in the life of the people of Israel. But God said, but listen, I know the plans. You don't know, but I know. And my plans for you are good. So, here's the question. Everybody look up here for a minute. Here's the question, last, last question. Can God take empty arms and an empty life and fill them again? And the answer is yes. And when you read the book of Ruth, when you come to the fourth chapter, when you fast forward all the way to the fourth chapter, that's really what the story, one of the main themes in the story. Chapter 1 is Ruth empty. Chapter 4 is Ruth full again. And God is the one who made the difference. You see, let me tell you, I hate to give the story away, but let me go ahead and tell you, some of you perhaps have read it this week anyway. At the end of the book, Ruth, or Naomi rather, Naomi's life is full again. At the end of the book, Naomi's life is full again. But it's not with a husband, and it's not with a son. At the end of the book, Naomi's arms are full again with a grandbaby. And when she holds that grandbaby, guess what they call her? They stopped calling her Mara, and now they're calling her Naomi. Pleasant is back. The life and the arms that were so empty are now full again. The heart that was so empty is now full again as she holds her grandbaby. And God's in heaven saying, working. 
and I will bless you. And may I say to you today with a loving heart, just keep talking to him. Keep trusting in him. And keep turning to him. Even if your heart grows bitter. Let me pray with you. Father, I know that there are hurting people here today and my heart is heavy for them. I know, Lord, that you have helped many through days of grief and days of darkness and days that, that seem like they could never go on. I pray for those who still are struggling with something, Lord, and I pray that, that by the power of your holy word that you would convince them that healing will take some time, but it will come. Convince them, give them that hope, give them that certainty that healing will take some time, but it will come. And I pray for their healing, for their emotional strength, for their spiritual strength. I pray for the comfort that comes from your word and from your presence. In Jesus' name.